Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of BMO Financial Group, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Thank you for joining us for where we are and what comes next with respect to COVID-19 and coronavirus. Today, you're going to hear from medical experts and subject matter experts from BMO Capital Markets with respect to those subjects, especially important today on a momentous day in American and world history, and the first person being vaccinated here in the United States. Just as a reminder, uh, if you do need medical attention, please reach out to your medical professional. Joining us on today's call and someone that has joined us uh, for the last 10 months on all of these calls, I'd like to thank Dr. John White personally for everything he's done for our clients and for BMO Financial Group in general. It's just been wonderful. And so Dr. John White from WebMD is joining us. We also are privileged and blessed to have Dr. Allison McGeer uh, from Toronto and Sinai Health to provide us with a Canadian perspective. So we're doing a little bit different this time. We're going to have an opportunity to hear from both doctors uh, and their perspectives and then have an opportunity to speak to one another and give an additional perspective on what they thought of each other's comments. Then we'll hand it off to subject matter experts uh, at BMO, which include Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory, as usual, and our head of fixed income, currency and commodity strategist, uh, strategy, I'm sorry, Margaret Karens in Chicago. And then I will also layer in some comments with respect to investment strategy. Just a reminder for those of you that have joined us online, you can and please do uh, send us any questions, comments, concerns uh, that you may have in the chat line that is with you. Also, there's a tremendous amount of content available to you on bmocm.com, bmocm.com to look at the uh, all the content that we have been providing all of you as clients. Uh, and please reach out to your relationship manager if you've not seen that. So let's get this rolling with Dr. John White, who, as I previously said, is the chief medical expert for WebMD, been there for several years. He's also is a former FDA member, which is obviously is topical with how fast this vaccine got out. And there's a lot of things that he's going to share with us on how that happened. And also remember, too, that Dr. White is a practicing doctor in the DC area. So he's a frontline soldier and has been all along this journey uh, with respect to COVID-19 coronavirus. And with that, Dr. White, please go ahead. Well, good morning, Brian, and good morning, everyone. And I'm gonna start off by telling you where we are and, and maybe uh, leave you with some predictions about the future. And I think this is really good news. As you all know, the FDA authorized the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech on Friday night. And basically what it talked about was that it is a safe vaccine and that it is 95% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19 infection. And that is really big news. As, as Brian had mentioned, um, it has already started in terms of the vaccination of persons today. Uh, it had previously been authorized in the UK 
in Canada and some Middle Eastern countries. But I also want to talk about what else the FDA recently put out in a fact sheet, because some people have brought up this issue of the severe allergic reactions that we saw in the UK. And I just want to read it. It said that people with a history of allergies, but not for those who might have a known history of severe allergic reaction to any of the components. So just because you have allergies doesn't mean that you would not get the vaccine. But if you have severe allergic reaction to the ingredients. So, you know, I printed out the ingredients because everyone has been asking me what's in the vaccine. And it's really very little. It's obviously the mRNA that I'm going to come back to. It's lipids, which really is a suspension for the vaccine. It's salt and it's sugar. So I want to put it all out there because sometimes there's misinformation, particularly about the ingredients. Um, the FDA also said that there was insufficient evidence for pregnant women or women who are lactating. There's no absolute contraindication, but women who are pregnant or lactating or want to discuss it with their doctor. Now, Pfizer did say that starting in January, they're going to study it in persons less than 16 years of age because the vaccine is authorized for persons older than 16. Uh, and it's also going to study it in pregnant women. So the big news is, you know, 2.9 million doses being sent out right away. That's over 145 sites today, 425 sites tomorrow, 66 sites on Wednesday. 2.9 million doses right now. There's another 2.9 million doses, because remember, this is two shots, and then some are held in reserve. The CDC did make recommendations about prioritization in terms of health professionals and those that live in long-term care facilities and those that work in long-term care facilities are first. But ultimately, the states and local jurisdictions are deciding exactly how that's going to be given out. Some of them are doing it at the same time. For me, I work in an outpatient facility. Some places are deciding they're first going to do hospitals and then those that work in clinics. So there's going to be a little bit of differences across the different regions in the United States. We'll then have 25 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine by the end of this month, the end of the year, 25 million. That basically will be for 12 million persons because remember, it's two shots and then 100 million doses by March or April. It is going to be free in the United States under the CARES Act. There may be an administrative charge administering the vaccine, but insurance companies are going to pick that up. So that's important to put it out there. Remember, I mentioned a couple of times, it's two doses separated by about 21 days. We think you may have 50% immunity after the first dose, and then that 95% immunity about a week after you have the second dose. So before you have the immunity that we really want, it's going to take a, about um, you know four weeks because you're going to have to wait till after you got that second shot. How long? you're going to have immunity for. We don't know. We're hoping it's several years. We're hoping it's not like influenza, and I don't think it will be. But remember, these studies are going on for two more years, so we're going to continue to find out 
more information. The other point I want to put out is by law, an emergency use authorization considers the drug investigational. And I point this out because there's some discussion whether this vaccine will be mandatory. I don't think it will be, partly because of that investigational designation. And at the same time, we want to inspire confidence, use the carrot, not the stick, that I'll come back to. Um, But I also want to point out that Pfizer did announce that in April, it'll apply for full um, biological uh, application, which is called a BLA, so full approval. But there's still more good news, because as you may know, Moderna's vaccine is going to be reviewed by the FDA this week on December 17th. So that's encouraging. That's also an mRNA vaccine. And just in 30 seconds, I want to describe how the mRNA vaccine works. mRNA, we're inserting a piece of genetic material that is going to create the spike protein. It's called coronavirus because it has a crown. And these spikes are actually what allows the virus to get into your body, to get into your lung, to get into your blood vessels. So if I create using the code to make this spike protein, which isn't harmful, then when I actually come into contact with COVID-19, I'm going to mount an immune response and protect myself. So that's how that works. But there's also other type of vaccine candidates. J&J has what's called an adenovirus. That's going to... um, be looked at by FDA in February. They expect to apply for the EUA. They recently announced they're going down from 60,000 persons in a phase three trial to 40,000, recognizing we need to be moving on this. AstraZeneca, you may have heard about, is also an adenovirus. They've had some challenges in the interpretation of the data. First, it seemed to be about 60 to 70% effective, but that was with a half dose followed by a full dose. Didn't completely make sense maybe 90%, um, or that was 60% at first, and then uh, the half dose and the other doses, all gets very confusing. See, even I'm confused reporting it. So we're gonna have to learn more about that. But the key about these two viruses, the adenovirus, is that it doesn't require that super cold temperature. Logistically, it's gonna be easier uh, to administer, and that might be very relevant for the developing world. The other thing is J&J has both a single dose regimen, that's what they originally started with, but they're also testing a two dose regimen as well. And then Sanofi and GSK also have a vaccine candidate. They've had some challenges with the formulation and and they probably are much further uh, in third and fourth quarter in 2021. But the point is, this really is a game changer in our desire to crush COVID-19. It's not the only strategy that we can use. First of all, we still need to do the mask wearing, the physical distancing, the hand washing, avoiding large gatherings. It's going to be several months before we really see the impact of wide-scale immunization but it really is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel very good today about 
where we are. We've been limping along, and this really gives us a comprehensive strategy. And the reason why I say that is we focused a lot on vaccine development, but Operation Warp Speed is also about therapeutics as well. And we're continuing to study therapeutics. I expect we're going to have a much more aggressive testing strategy as well. We've had direct-to-consumer authorization of COVID tests. We've had self-collection at home recently authorized. So we have a lot more strategies than we did before. And what I also want to end with is this really is a success story of innovation, of science, of engineering. We should be celebrating the progress and the success that we have, not just in vaccine development, but also where we are in therapeutic actions as well and testing. So it's really exciting where we are in, in terms of just over nine or 10 months. And I'm going to come back to this when we talk a little more about vaccine confidence. Let's celebrate the innovation that we have, the scientists, the engineer, the doctors, as well appreciate all the frontline workers, the health professionals, the bus drivers, the essential workers, law enforcement. It's been a, a long process over the past 10 months, but we're in a much better place by far today than we were just a week ago. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Brian. Thank you, Dr. White. Yes, I think we should celebrate and we need to uh, all over the world. So with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. Allison McGear, who is a Canadian infectious disease specialist at the Sinai Health System, a professor at Dalalana School of Public Health and a senior clini clinician, I'm sorry, scientist at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute. Dr. McGear has led investigations into the severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak in Toronto and worked alongside Donald Lowe. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. McGear has studied how SARS-CoV-2 survives in the year, in the air. And with that, Dr. McGear, it's all yours. So uh, the first thing I wanna start with, this is absolutely a day for celebrating. Um, it is, incredibly exciting to be watching the vaccine rollout in, in Canada and the United States. Uh, and as has been pointed out, uh, a triumph of literally warp speed for the development of vaccines to get us out of this pandemic. But maybe it's just being Canadian. I want to spend just a minute talking about the tunnel before we get to the light at the end of it. Um, because one of the things we need to be really careful about in the next three months is that we don't get so excited about the vaccine um, that we lose control of the pandemic in between. So this slide shows you uh, our current incidence per capita in Canada. One of the things you have to recognize about Canada is we, we may think we're one country, but really we're 13. Um, and you can see on this slide that over on the on the right-hand side is our Atlantic bubble with very, very low rates of COVID-19, really great success story of controlling transmission. Um, and on the left-hand side, uh, Alberta, our province with the 
current most difficulty. Um, in Alberta, we are already well over our ICU capacity. It's important to remember that we have much less flex in hospital beds and ICU beds in Canada than the United States does. So we hit uh, our, our limits much more quickly and Alberta is, is clearly going to be in very difficult healthcare circumstances uh, for the next two months at least. Um, and just to give you a sense of how we compare to the United States, this is the Rhode Island was the top last week in terms of incidents, Hawaii was the bottom. Um, and you can see that um, Canada is well down the list, but we're not that dramatically different from, from rates in many American states. And the big question, of course, is how much trouble are we going to be in? So in Canada, what we're looking at at the moment is we have, we, we started our increase in COVID in the middle of October, shortly after Thanksgiving holidays. Uh, and we have gradually in each province at slightly different times been increasing our COVID control measures. Um, and that has slowed the rate of growth, but it hasn't stopped it. So we're sitting in Canada at the moment at a reproductive ratio just a little bit above one. Pretty consistently, cases are still climbing, but they're climbing very slowly. And all of us are living in fear that over the holiday time, people will just not be able to bear to maintain social distancing. And that the consequence of that is that we'll start to see cases increase. Remember, there's a lag time between when people are exposed and when you start to see cases, which is 10 days to two weeks, three weeks to hospitalization, four weeks to ICU. So people are very worried, particularly in Alberta with very high rates, that we're going to have a serious problem with intensive care unit capacity and healthcare capacity in general in February and March. Um, so you hear now the plea going out from public health authorities and politicians all across the country to say, just see if you can delay Christmas, do your holidays virtually um, so that we don't get into uh, a crisis in healthcare in January, February, March, and we don't have this large excess of deaths that if we can delay them, will be prevented by vaccines. Uh, and then, as with the United States, okay, we have before the end of December, 294,000 doses of vaccine coming to Canada. So that's just about exactly the same rate per population as Americans are getting. Um, and uh, like you, the Pfizer and Biotech vaccine coming first. Hopefully, Moderna will get approved um, this week. And then I'm told that it will start coming next week. Um, and that's really helpful to us because our uh, protocols for vaccination in Canada start with long-term care residents. And Pfizer has been so worried about the stability of their vaccine in transport, particularly when it's thought, um, that we're only giving Pfizer vaccines at specific health centers. That means we can move staff to those health centers but we can't move obviously residents of long-term care. And so the residents of long-term care who are right at the top of our list um, are not gonna be able to get vaccine probably until either the Moderna vaccine comes in or Pfizer uh, gets enough stability data 
to allow vaccines to be thawed and moved outside of centers when they're thawed. Where are we going from here? Well, as Dr. White has already said, there's gonna be a little bit of variability between provinces and what we do. In Ontario, we're very clear that our major problem at the moment is in long-term care, and we will be focused on residents of long-term care, healthcare workers in long-term care, essential caregivers for long-term care. Alberta, on the other hand, which has a much bigger problem in acute care at the moment is going to start with acute care hospital healthcare workers, and that makes sense. Um, and all of us are then going to be trying to deliver as much vaccine to our designated high-risk groups as we can. Again, a little bit of, of a breather. Those of us who are not in those high-risk groups are going to have to wait. If you add up all of our high-risk groups in Canada, the, the, the first tranche of vaccine, uh, that means we need 6.4 million doses of vaccine. Everybody gets vaccinated. Uh, and that's how much vaccine we expect to have by the end of March. So it's going to be the end of March before we are through the first high priority group. Getting to that group will allow us to get healthcare back. It will stop deaths in our long-term care facilities. Hopefully it will stop outbreaks in our long-term care facilities. Uh, and then we will be able to move on to the, the vaccination program for everybody else, which will get us our life back and, and, and normal life back. Um, but that's going to take probably until sometime in September and October. So it's really a, an incredibly exciting time to watch. Um, but it's also, we also need to be taking a breath and saying, okay, we just need to be keeping this up for another five or six months until we get enough people vaccinated to slow the spread. Thank you. So much, Dr. McGeer. I think we're gonna shift now to uh, back and forth between the two doctors, if that would be all right. And Dr. White, listening to Dr. McGeer's comments and knowing what you know about Canada and everything that's all wrapped up into the last 12 or 10 months, I'm sorry. Is there something you'd like to uh, interject or speak with Dr. McGeer uh, now that you have uh, this forum? You know, I think the issue here has been uh, vaccine confidence. Are people willing to take the vaccine? And that's why I talked about celebrating innovation. As many people know, there, there has been in some ways an attack on science. And some days I feel like instead of saying, I don't understand science, people are saying, I don't trust science. So I, I was wondering your thoughts on kind of the cultural differences that exist, even though we're neighbors between Canada and the United States, and, and whether you think acceptance of the vaccine will be a challenge in Canada as we're concerned it might be here in the United States. I, I do think acceptance of the vaccine is going to be a challenge. You know, this is this is new technology. This is a new disease. This is a new vaccine. Um, and of course, people are worried about it and have questions about it. Uh, I think our success in vaccination is going to be in how well we communicate what's been going on with the vaccine, why it's come so fast, um, why it kind of looks like it's rushed when in fact, it, it although it's rushed, it's actually very carefully rushed. Um, and it's also going to depend on, on what happens with the rollout and, and how we manage it. You know, 
there every year when we do influenza vaccination campaigns, something happens that causes you to worry about the influenza vaccine. And how we deal with that in public health, how the media deals with that, um, really has a huge impact on what happens with vaccination programs. So I think one of the things is in, in all countries, we can expect a bumpy ride, okay? This is gonna be a, there are gonna be some adverse events, probably not associated with the vaccine, but you're not gonna know that for sure when they start. Um, there's going to be children who die from COVID that are going to drive up demand. So, so I think demand is going to ebb and flow as the news cycle ebbs and flows. Um, but it's also really going to be very heavily dependent on how well we do as a profession um, in, in medicine and nursing, in communicating information about these vaccines um, and their efficacy and safety to people. That's, a, that, that's on us for the next six or nine months. No, I agree. You know, I, I almost hesitate to say the words genetic material because people get concerned, and I, I purposely didn't say it was a chimpanzee adenovirus. Do you think language matters a lot here? I think we have to be transparent and put the data out there. And even if people aren't experts, for it to be out there so they can look and see themselves. But does that worry you at all in, in, in terms of kind of the language that we use at times? I think, you know, there's there's a lot of things about the specific technical language you use in vaccines that is guaranteed to make people anxious. It's easy to get upset about, you know, if you, you, you can, so I can say to you, okay, Pfizer vaccine has very few things in it um, and they're lipid and salt and sucrose. Um, and then you go online and one of those lipid names has 27 syllables um, and it just looks dangerous when you look at it. You know, and, and then it, it, it takes trust in a chemist who can just say to you, oh, yeah, you know, here, here's the chemical components of that. And that's pretty simple. And that's just something that gives you a long chain that makes little micelles to protect the mRNA to get it into cells. And, and it kind of makes sense. But the, you know, there's no doubt that when you get into technical language, um, that it can be relatively scary for people. I think we're better off just to tolerate that. I think we have to, it's gonna be available online, people are gonna see it. We, ha we have to get people sort of up to speed on this, you know. I When I was talking earlier, I used the term reproductive ratio, you know, and who would have thought that 11 months ago that I could say reproductive ratio to anybody in the world and they would know what it was. Right. So I, I think we're going to be like that about vaccines. And that's going to be a really good thing for vaccination going forward, because we start to have this discussion in detail about understanding what's in your vaccines. That can only be good in the long term. What do you think? You think how much trouble are we going to be in with with vaccine hesitancy in the United States? I think it's going to be a challenge, particularly in minority populations where there historically been a distrust. But I am confident that as we have this transparency, as scientific experts talk about how it's not rushed, and that we also weigh risk versus benefit. 
let's be honest, we all want schools fully reopened. We all want businesses reopened. And anything that we can all do to contribute to returning to some sense of normal, I think at the end, most folks are going to get behind. And in the media world, we have to be careful to put it into context. You're right. People are going to have some adverse reactions. There's going to be some logistic challenges, just as we saw in testing, just as we saw in PPE. We're going to have to be patient, but recognize a lot of people have been comparing COVID to, you know, house fire. And we have to treat it as that house fire and quash it all at once. And the vaccine is going to give us one of those strategies in combination with improved testing uh, and improved therapeutics. Thank you, Dr. White. Thank you, Dr. McGeer. We're going to switch gears now and hand it off to BMO subject matter experts. We're going to start off with Michael Gregory, who's Deputy Chief Economist at BMO Financial Group, live from Toronto. Go ahead, Michael. Thanks, Brian. Well, I guess the answer to the question is uh, sort of where are we right now? And, and as uh, the two doctors have, have emphasized, it's great news that we've developed and are distributing a vaccine uh, much more quickly than was uh, believed will be the case just several months ago. And, and I think most people are looking at the prospects for, for the economies on both sides of the border and, and saying that the, the second half of next year uh, and in 2022, uh, those prospects are brightening. And uh, unfortunately, we have to get from here to there. And where we are here is those infection rates rising. And as a result, we're seeing provinces and states and local jurisdictions increasing restrictions. I mean, just within the last sort of week or so, we saw restrictions increase in uh, California and in uh, Alberta. Uh, just uh, today went to enforce the uh, restrictions on indoor dining in New York City. And also today, the uh, uh, expansion of restrictions in the greater Toronto area. And, and these restrictions are going to have uh, a hit to growth. Uh, and we do expect that uh, the very strong growth we had in the third quarter is going to peter out as we turn the year. Uh, now, the good news about this is that this is not going to be sort of uh, an impact that we had, say, in the spring, where the first wave of lockdowns. We're a little more targeted this time, trying to keep schools open where possible, which is critically important for labor force participation and things like that. And besides, I think uh, businesses have gotten accustomed to uh, operating under COVID protocols. So it does make it a, a little bit easier. Uh, it, yes, if businesses are, 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 you know, can't open their stores anymore, we can resort back to sort of the curbside pickup online, that kind of stuff, which may not have been as easy to do because it hadn't been set up yet uh, back in the spring. And let's face it, that first wave of, of the virus uh, had a lot of casualties on the, on the business front. And and, you know, that means there's potentially more customers available for every surviving business. And besides, I do think that the hit to business and consumer confidence from the second wave is going to be much more uh, dampened than was the case in that first wave. Because we all know we're starting to see those vaccines being uh, uh, distributed uh, as we speak. And, and yes, it's true. It's going to be some time before that gets to the general population. Uh, and, and therefore, the economy is vulnerable uh, in the interim. And that's why it's critically important at this stage for uh, for governments, government policy, to try to get us over this COVID winter hump. Uh, and, uh, we, and we've seen that, for example, in Canada with the latest uh, fiscal update. It tacked on 
you know, a budget deficit now that's uh, for the fiscal year ending in March, some, you know, $382 billion was 343 in its first pass back, uh, uh, back in the summer, uh, extending some of the programs uh, through the uh, spring to try to make sure that the, the, the economy has that support that it needs. Uh, and, and we're kind of waiting to see what, uh, you know, comes out of Washington. There, there already is a bipartisan uh, bill. Uh, uh, $908 billion to provide some support, particularly expansion or rather extension of the unemployment insurance uh, support programs, uh, the expansion of uh, the moratoriums on uh, evictions, the expansion of the, or the extension rather, of the, uh, 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 the, you know, the forbearance on student loans and the other mortgage programs. So these things are there. Unfortunately, it's getting caught up a little bit on the uh, political side. It's unclear whether uh, we'll get that passed uh, before the end of the year, which is critically important because a lot of these uh, programs do end at the end of the year. And there's still some 13 million Americans that are you know, collecting some of these extended and expanded UI uh, benefits, and, and they all will lose those benefits come January 1st. So uh, you know, we, we do think we will get that support, but it is critically important that we do get it to get us through this hump. And, and uh, But I think beyond that, you know, we're going to see growth in Canada probably grind to a halt through the turn of the year as these restrictions begin to show up in economic activity. Let's put it this way. We had growth of, uh, you know, 40% annualized rate, more than slightly more than 40% in the third quarter. We think we'll probably be down about two and a half percent in the, for the full fourth quarter. And that includes a little bit of slowdown, uh, literally a, a potential on a month to month basis, a slight uh, uh, contraction uh, through the turn of the year. And in the early part of next year, uh, roughly around, you know, uh, that sort of 2% range, give or take a little bit in the United States, you know, we had the 33% expansion in the, uh, in the third quarter, uh, the fourth quarter, we think they'll do a little bit better. The restrictions are coming in a little bit later than they, they, they came in in Canada. Therefore the economy, you know, didn't get hit, hit by as much, but so we're looking about 5% growth in the fourth quarter. But even in the first quarter of next year, we think, uh, again, as things slow down even further through the turn of the year, we'll be down around about a 1% growth rate, which is a uh, you know pretty slow comparing where we went before. Now, uh, we do think that what these restrictions will do, they're going to dent this recovery, but they're not going to derail that. But it, it is critically important that we get further support. We're getting it in Canada. I suspect we will get it in the U.S. if, if not before the end of the year. If not immediately after those uh, uh, by-election or those uh, uh, Senate runoff elections in Georgia, uh, and, and if not then, then presumably very early in the first few days of a Biden administration. So I'll leave it at that for now, and I'll pass things over to my colleague Margaret Cairns. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, we agree with the setup uh, that Michael has just outlined. And in this backdrop of extreme monetary and fiscal stimulus next year, we do expect 10-year Treasury yields, Treasury yields in general, to remain rate-bound, range-bound. Uh, we expect that credit spreads will actually uh, make a run toward all-time height, uh, all-time tights breaching the uh, the prior tights of about 85 basis points, 85 basis points, which is an incredible recovery over what we had seen in March. That said, we do think there will be some bumps along the way, as also mentioned by Dr. McGeer. Uh, in Treasury rates, we do 
think that we could possibly reach the lows of 2020 in that 50 to 60 basis point range and also make a run toward the 1% to 125 range. So range bound within a classic range, but the lower end defined by what we did see in 2020. This basically is due to um, the backdrop of we expect that if we make a run towards the 1%, 125, better buying will emerge because rates are low globally. We've got a global environment of fiscal and monetary stimulus, and U.S. rates are still relatively attractive. The view in credit spreads of making a run toward the all-time tights is basically supported by a uh, very accommodative Fed and Treasury market and a reach-for-yield environment. Uh, we do agree with Michael and our economics team that the economy is set to slow down in the first quarter due to uh, these uh, re-shutdowns uh, that are occurring across the United States. And while that normally would be credit spread negative, we think the market looks past that and, and continues on uh, the liquidity and reach for yield bin binge that's been occurring. You know, in terms, one of the big stories in the backdrop is you know, the market will try to price inflation uh, next year, just given the amount of monetary and fiscal uh, stimulus that has occurred or will continue to occur. Uh, we, you know, we think that the Fed uh, will be bound by that feedback loop where if you get any real pricing of inflation, the equity market sells off, financial uh, conditions tighten, and the Fed, again, has to step in and increase some sort of accommodation. Uh, in addition to that, we completely retain our conviction that uh, the long-term demographics, technology, and globalization that uh, are still occurring in the marketplace will suppress long-run inflation. Now, when I said bumps along the road, some of the bumps will be because of the market trying to price in those inflation expectations as the economy uh, rebounds uh, once we're more fully reopened on the back of uh, what these doctors uh, just explained to all of us. Uh, in terms of, we also think the market's going to try to price some tapering. Uh, the Fed has learned their tapering lesson from the prior crisis, and we don't think they're going to uh, go down that path next year at all. And most, more likely, they will remain extraordinarily accommodative uh, with an open door. And, and that should keep uh, financial conditions uh, pretty steady. So while it doesn't sound uh, too exciting with a range-bound market, uh, which is very, very you know, typical, uh, there will be some bumps along the road, but we think uh, back up to the upper end of the range in either credit or in rates will be a buying opportunity. Uh, you know, if I was asked... Um, you know, what could be an outside risk? Obviously, we've got the relative, the, 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 the geopolitical risks that are always in the background and any kind of, uh, you know, heating up there could become a problem uh, next year. We also have the fact that Treasury is set to issue a record amount of coupons, and that's not bills on the front end, it's, it's coupons. Uh, we're estimating 1.7 trillion. Uh, to put that in perspective, Prior to the crisis, 2019, we were probably just under a trillion. So we're going, and this is net issuance, net issuance added to the market. This is net issuance going into the public market 
post-Fed buying, assuming that the Fed continues to buy, we're looking at $1.7 trillion in coupons um, that will be uh, needed to be absorbed by the private markets next year. Not really a lot of focus on this technical uh, currently in the marketplace, and I really think that's because of uh, the Fed backdrop uh, with repo facilities and liquidity, et cetera, um, that it's not really being seen as a problem. But we could definitely something to watch, I think, um, as this story unfolds next year. So basically, that's all I have. I do uh, encourage everyone to please take a look at our 2021 outlooks. And also, um, if you have any questions or concerns, please reach out to myself or the rest of our team. And uh, also, if you have any questions, and I wish everyone a happy, uh, happy end to the year and a, a good next year. Thanks, Margaret. Uh, before we go to questions uh, from the field, and thank you so much, everyone, for sending in your questions. We do have questions that we're going to ask uh, the docs. I thought I'd kind of wrap this up and do a little bowl with respect to what we're saying in terms of investing. Uh, for both the United States and Canada. And as we take a step back and kind of look at this year, 2020, I know all of us want to kind of forget about 2020, but I think there's still a lot of things that we can remember uh, about 2020 and implement that in our lives and, and how we invest going forward. So I, the way I kind of look at it is the three C's of COVID, uh, the three C's of COVID, chaos, coexist, and now cure. Clearly, the chaos that we saw in the first quarter was driven by fear and rhetoric, and we didn't know. And, and that's okay, by the way. That's okay. No other time in human history did our social, uh, personal, and business lives intertwine as we were forced to stay at home and the like. Then as stimulus hit, then as we began to coexist and learn how to coexist with the virus from social distancing to hand washing to masks, uh, the market continued to recover. And now we've moved into the cure phase and what we're going to do next with respect to investing and how we're going to invest. And if 2020 taught us anything, it's not going to be as easy as the market is depicting. It's not going to be as easy as, as buying this stock or this industry or this sector. We really believe that this next phase of the bull market, uh, which we've been talking about now for 12 years, uh, we continue to believe that U.S. stocks are in a 20-year bull market. And on March 23rd, 2020, that was the quote-unquote control-alt-delete reset for the last 10 years of the bull market, which we continue to believe will look different in terms of how the bull market is going to be trading and acting. Uh, much of the last 10 years, 10, 12 years, has really been driven by macro trading, quantitative trading, and momentum. We think the next 10 years are going to be good old-fashioned fundamentals. And if you're looking at good old-fashioned fundamentals and looking at equities, there's no better place to look than the United States and Canada, in our view. So we believe that at least the next three to five years will be driven by North American stocks. And the strength and fundamental strength of North American stocks, and again, good old-fashioned bottoms-up stock picking, as we focus on companies and services and products and earnings and valuation and themes and stories things that I learned in the business in the 80s and 90s. I think it's kind of coming back to that. And I think we're well positioned that at BMO, given our great research departments in both Canada and the United States. And that leads us with respect to how we're positioned for the U.S. at a 4,200 target in terms of the S&P 500 on $170 of earnings. That equates to 35% earnings growth and double-digit upside in terms of prices as of right now. We favor financial stocks discretionary stocks and industrial stocks for the next 12 months. But over the next three to five years, we remain overweight from a longer term and secular position 
technology companies, communication services companies from a sector basis, and select healthcare and consumer discretionary. In terms of Canada, we believe Canada's undiscovered value. It's a backdoor way to the, the United States. In fact, Canada, we believe on a short-term basis, uh, will exceed the U.S. in terms of performance in the fourth quarter. We don't like to talk about quarterly uh, performance, but it's a game of catch-up right now in Canada. We think Canada's coming along for the right. Our theme for several years has been, as America goes, so goes Canada. And the strong cross-border relationship with respect to trade and fundamentals, we believe, is only going to get stronger. And so we believe that Canada and the TSX index, which is the proper index uh, for Canada, is going to reach 19,200. Uh, I'm sorry, 19500 uh, in 2021 on $1,100 of earnings. So we believe the bull market in Canada, at least on an annual basis, continues. Again, we at BMO Capital Markets have provided a tremendous amount of, of content to all of you. As, as Margaret so adeptly said, she published her year ahead uh, recently. We published our year ahead in terms of investment strategy on November 19th. Please reach out to your relationship managers or bmocm.com for those related contents. So on to some questions from the field. And I guess the first question um, is coming, uh, it will go to, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. John White. And you talk about the 95% efficacy uh, with respect um, to this drug. And if you could talk about what that actually really means in terms of the efficacy, number one. And then number two, as part of that, as being a former member of the FDA, how would you grade the FDA in terms of how they've done uh, through all of this uh, the last 10 months, which is quite frankly miraculous, but we'd love to hear your views on both of those things. Sure. Here's how they got to the 95% efficacy, Brian. 30,000 people, 15,000 in placebo, 15,000 got the vaccine, 162 cases of COVID, in the placebo group, those people that do not get the vaccine, eight people in the vaccine group. So some people did have vaccine failure in terms of, for whatever reason, they may not have responded. So that's, and there's additional more math involved, but that's in general where they got in terms of 95% in preventing symptomatic infection. The issue becomes, can you be asymptomatic and still have the virus and spread? Possibly. We're gonna to have to learn a little more. As my colleague said, it's the novel coronavirus because it's new. That's why we're still saying, wear a mask, physically distance, wash hands, even when you do get the vaccine. In terms of how I grade my former colleagues, many of them who I know well, I'm a tough grader, Brian, so I'm gonna give them an A minus. And, and I have to say, what I've been impressed by is the transparency. Anyone could go on the FDA website, download the 53-page document, which really explained their reasoning, which I think was very well written. And there's really been an effort to be transparent. And that hasn't always been the case. And, and these dedicated scientific professionals, and the FDA is mostly scientific professionals, career people, not many politicals, have been working around the clock for many months. And I say kudos to them for doing a you know, very scientific review of the safety and efficacy while still asking hard questions. So there's still some data that needs to be collected and they're gonna to continue to monitor doing the vaccine while also evaluating therapeutics, while also evaluating diagnostics. 
So that's where we get the 95%. We still need to get a little more data, but you know, we're on the road to recovery. So I feel very good about where we are today. Thank you so much, Dr. White. And on to Dr. McGeer, I have a question from you from, from uh, the field. Uh, you talked about Canada being one of uh, 13 uh, with, the, with the provinces. And you also talk about a North American perspective to this. And we all know that this is a herd mentality type thing. I mean, how many people do you believe um, from your perspective and your experience working through this uh, to eradicate this? Uh, how many people do we need really need uh, to vaccinate in North America? And what would be kind of the way that you would see that following through? That's a really interesting question to which I don't think any of us have the answer. We do know, you know, we, we've tended to think of herd immunity as an on-off phenomenon. You know, you get to a certain level and then you're okay. And I think the evidence we have from influenza and other respiratory viruses is that's actually not true. That herd immunity is gradual and that every added number of people who get vaccinated gives you more protection and less transmission. So I'm I'm in some senses not that fussed about a, a single number. It's absolutely true that the more people we vaccinate, the less trouble we'll have with COVID-19. But it, it's also true that we're going to have to learn to live with COVID-19. This virus is here. It's not going away. We're not going to get rid of it. Um, we're only going to have less of it. So at the same time as the the very clearly, the more people we get vaccinated, the less disease we'll have, the faster we'll get back to normal. At the same time, we don't have to have everybody vaccinated. We know some people are going to choose not to get vaccinated. Some people won't be able to be vaccinated. And, and we don't need everybody to get back to normal. So I, I'm just, I'm going to concentrate on being grateful for each individual person who chooses to get vaccine uh, in the next few months, because that's what matters, our, everybody's individual decision in, in building us towards protection from this virus. Thank you, Dr. McGeer. And we have a, we have a tradition on this call, uh, and the tradition is, and we've covered some of this already, but Dr. White always leaves us with something positive and he, and he did a little bit, but we've been doing these calls uh, here at BMO for a long time. And I guess the question as uh, for you, Dr. White, as we close out, this will be the, our final point here today, is you know we've been at this everybody now for several months and you as a doctor and you going through this, what has been the biggest surprise to you? And it can be positive or negative. I'm hoping that it's positive. But what has been the biggest surprise to you as you've gone through this? I'm going to be honest, Brian, and, and we've been talking now for 10 months. You're, you're all my colleagues. Early on, you know, I was a bit skeptical of the vaccine, especially in February and March, and, and wasn't sure where we'd be where we are today. So I'm quite pleasantly surprised about the innovation and success. And, and I've said it a couple times, but it's really something to celebrate when you think where we are today versus where we were in February. And I give kudos and props to, to all the scientists and engineers and health professionals that got, and the vaccine participants 
that, you know, gave up time and, and resources to participate. And because of all of their commitment and dedication, we have a vaccine and going to have several more vaccines that are going to help us on the road to recovery. So, so that's what I'm really impressed with. And I'm going to be honest, as I said, I'm a little bit surprised by it, but pleasantly surprised. Well, th thank you, Dr. White. And in closing, I'd like to thank Margaret Karens from BMO Capital Markets, Michael Gregory from BMO Capital Markets, and our great subject matter experts with respect to both Dr. White and Dr. McGeer. As a reminder, as I said uh, previously, there's a tremendous amount of content on BMOCM.com, uh, both Dr. White's and Dr. McGeer's comments and, and content, as well as a written summary of today's call and a recording. And of course, please reach out to your BMO uh, relationship manager to see all of the content from BMO in terms of ourselves from investment strategy, from economics and Michael Gregory, and, and of course, Margaret Karens in terms of fixed income currency and commodities. Please stay safe and stay well. Here's to a fantastic 2021. Happy holidays. And on behalf of BMO Financial Group, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation, together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.